All right, we're going to talk about uh, hell tonight. Um, and then next week, we're going to talk about, we're going to start with Revelation and talk just through the book of Revelation, okay? We'll see how long that takes us and where it takes us, and um, hopefully we'll all make it through together, all right? Um, but tonight, we're going to finish up this kind of thing we've been doing with kind of controversial stuff. And I don't know whether you know this or not, but um, there's been some controversy about hell recently. Uh, back in the winter, uh, actually more towards spring, somebody released a video online, and it caused a stir. Now, um, that's nothing new necessarily. I mean, that's we live in an age when stuff travels real quickly. But this caused a major stir, and after it was kind of over, I realized it was one of the most brilliant marketing strategies that has ever been used. Because the book had sold almost a million before it ever came out in pre-orders. I'm going to show you the video, and uh, just then we'll talk about kind of what's, what caused all the ruckus. Several years ago, we had an art show at our church, and people brought in all kinds of sculptures and paintings, and we put them on display, and there was this one piece that had a quote from Gandhi in it. And lots of people found this piece compelling. They'd stop and sort of stare at it and take it in and reflect on it, but not everybody found it that compelling. Somewhere in the course of the art show, somebody attached a handwritten note to the piece, and on the note, they had written, reality check, he's in hell. Gandhi's in hell? He is? And someone knows this for sure and, and felt the need to let the rest of us know? Will only a few select people make it to heaven? And will billions and billions of people burn forever in hell? And if that's the case, how do you become one of the few? Is it what you believe or what you say or what you do or who you know or something that happens in your heart? Or do you need to be initiated or baptized or take a class or converted or being born again? How does one become one of these few? And then there is the question behind the questions. The real question, what is God like? Because millions and millions of people were taught that the primary message, the center of the gospel of Jesus, is that God is going to send you to hell unless you believe in Jesus. And so what gets subtly sort of caught and taught is that Jesus rescues you from God. But what kind of God is that, that we would need to be rescued from this God? How could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how could that ever be good news? This is why lots of people want nothing to do with the Christian faith. They see it as an endless list of absurdities and inconsistencies, and they say, why would I ever want to be a part of that? See, what we believe about heaven and hell is incredibly important because it exposes what we believe about who God is and what God is like. What you discover in the Bible is so surprising, unexpected, and beautiful that whatever we've been told or taught, the good news is actually better than that, better than we could ever imagine. The good news is that love wins. All that was for a book 
called Love Wins by Rob Bell. Now, let me give you a little background on Rob Bell. I've heard Rob Bell speak on several occasions. Rob is a guy that if you listen to his testimony, he was raised in a a family, went to church. Uh, He describes, even in Love Wins, he describes a time in his life when he asked Jesus to come into his life and he felt something inside and knew that his life had changed at that moment. And so Rob is not a guy that uh, denies that Jesus saves. In fact, he would even write that Jesus only saves. He doesn't say anything negative in that way. Um, Rob is a guy that that pastors a church in the north. It's called Mars Hill. Um, Now, there's a distinction there because there's a Mars Hill, Seattle that is not Rob, but it's pastored by a guy named Mark. And Mark gets in a lot of trouble, too, in controversy, but for different reasons than Rob. And so when I was first learning what it meant to do podcasts, and you may not know what podcasts are, but when you get online and you subscribe, we have a podcast of our church. People can subscribe and automatically downloads our sermons every week for them. Well, I did that with two or three churches, and I actually thought I was going to his church to get his podcast. This is about 10 years ago or eight years ago, and I got the other mark, and I was like, that doesn't sound like the guy I'm reading over here. They're completely different, but same name of the church. Rob Bell preached one of the the best sermons I have heard in the last 10 years. It was a sermon called The Goat Has Left the Building. Um, He's an Elvis fan. He actually wrote a book called Velvet Elvis. Um, And The Goat Has Left the Building was a study of Yom Kippur in light of Jesus. And he brought an actual goat out on the platform and a man dressed as the high priest and preached it in such a way that he reenacted Yom Kippur and then talked about what Jesus did for us. Just unbelievably powerful. Uh, About five years ago, Rob started writing some things that were troubling, that he was venturing into different areas. And there were a lot of people that were really concerned that this is one of our most gifted communicators that's beginning to question some aspects of the Christian faith. And he did a tour, a speaking tour, I guess about three or four years ago, called The Gods Are Not Angry. And it was some of this, what he's working out, beginning to come. And so when that video went up online, all those people that had thought, someday he's going to walk away from Orthodox Christianity got really kind of up in arms. In fact, there's a a guy that's a a pastor up in Minneapolis who uh, knew Rob pretty well and had tried to counsel him at times. His name is John Piper. And immediately upon, I mean, that video came out. That afternoon, John Piper tweeted this. That's the 26th of February and said, Farewell, Rob Bell. Just short. And then it linked to a guy that works for him who had written a blog post about this video. Now, here was the thing that got some people up in arms. Nobody had seen the book yet. And they were already saying, well, this is what's going to happen. Now, what's interesting is on Twitter, they they put how many people retweet it. Uh, And if you're not familiar with Twitter, that just means you read something. You go, that's really cool. I'll let people that are my friends or follow me know it. And so... It just said, you know, gives Haley is Harmony. I don't know who Haley is Harmony is, but a hundred plus others. It was retweeted. It, it here's the thing: when that when that went out, Twitter does this thing. How many of you are familiar with Twitter at all? Okay, a couple of you. All right. 
Twitter does this thing where they show you the topics that everyone's talking about worldwide. Like the top ten things being mentioned right now. And on February 26th, two of the top ten worldwide trending topics were John Piper and Rob Bell. And so it was this thing that just kind of blew up. Suddenly, uh, um, Rob Bell is being interviewed on um, CNN. He's being interviewed on MSNBC. He's being interviewed on Good Morning America. He's got all these interviews set up about this. But that's why I say it's a brilliant marketing strategy because nothing in the Christian community sells like controversy. And so millions of books are there. I mean, the, I ordered this book not long after it came out, and it's already got the New York Times bestseller stamp on it. They could put that on there before they ever sent out a book because it just sold that quickly. Um, I mean, this that video came out a month before the book. And so people just began to react, and then they get the book and they start to read it. And the thing that is difficult about Rob Bell's book, which I've read, is that he is not sure of anything. And so he doesn't really give answers. He just raises questions. But it's one of those... There are times when people ask questions and you know what they want you to think the answers ought to be. In the courtroom, they call that leading questions. And Rob Bell does a masterful job of asking leading questions. So people started to respond because... If there's one thing that we want to do in the Christian community is we want to respond when we think somebody has done something wrong. And you couple that with if somebody sells a million books, people think I can sell a million about why the person that sold a million is not right. And so when you had, remember the prayer of Jabez a few years ago? Do you remember that? Sold millions of copies. There were three books called the prayer of Jesus that came out. Same little format almost immediately. Okay. So. We had books like Christ Alone, an evangelical response to Rob Bell's Love Wins. And then God Wins. Not Love Wins, God Wins. Heaven, Hell, and Why the Good News is Better Than Love Wins. Well, at the same time, there was this guy working on a book of his own by the name of Francis Chan. And it was called Erasing Hell. And Francis Chan said he was writing this before Rob Bell did. But... When you read his book, it's evident that he, he didn't publish it until later. And he says, okay, here are the problems with the book. So what does he actually say? Well, here, let me read it to you a little bit. I'm not going to read you a lot of it because you don't want me to, and I don't want to read it to you. So uh, if you haven't read the book, you're not missing a lot. Here's the thing that's for, it's. I'll tell you this. I told Coat this today. I told um, Elizabeth was asking me about it because Elizabeth had read something of his. He is the most frustrating writer. This is the most frustrating book I've read in a long time. Because he is absolutely gifted by God in the way that he interprets and creatively tells things. And I could read it and appreciate that he was making a right point about the Scripture but I knew the jump he was going to make and that you can't make that jump. And so I would read it going, man, that is good. Oh, please don't do that. And he would. Okay. But this is what he says. And it's an example of what I mean. To begin with a bit about this book. 
First, I believe that Jesus' story is first and foremost about the love of God for every single one of us. It is a stunning, beautiful, expansive love, and it is for everybody everywhere. And it's one of those statements you go, absolutely. That is, that is the story of Jesus. That's the story. For God so loved the world. That's why Jesus came. That's his message. That's where life is found. And then he says this. But a staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. It's been clearly communicated to many that this belief is a central truth of the Christian faith and to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. This is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. And so you have on the one hand, he says, that the story of Jesus is about God's love for humanity. And I would say absolutely it is. But then he says the problem is the reason we're not getting that message out is because we talk about hell. And if you get the sense that he thinks if we could just eliminate hell, it'd be a lot easier to tell people about God's love. And so then he begins to say, so does the Bible really teach about hell? Or does the Bible teach that God's love wins in the end and eventually all people will come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and enter into heaven. Eventually. Now, he wouldn't, he never uses the word purgatory. He never uses that idea, but he, or doesn't use that word, but he does give this idea that he thinks that after people die, there is a continual wooing of God for them. And then it may take people longer than others, but eventually everybody will be in the kingdom. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, so I'm sure you all remember completely. All right. What's the belief, what's called where that believes that everybody gets in eventually? That's what I thought. Listen to y'all, such good students. Universalism, that's it. All right. Universalism. And so Rob Bell, he was asked if he's a universalist, and he said no. And then they said, well, do you believe everybody? He said, I believe love wins, which is a way of not answering the question. And so he would be one of those people that says that it it eventually they all do. Now, he's not the first one in the history of Christianity to kind of propose that. There was a guy in uh, 185. Y'all remember 185, right? It's been 1900 years ago or so. His name was Origen, and that's not because he was old enough to be the original. It's just Origen. And he, even though he, kind of like Rob Bell, is kind of riding the fence on some things, um, seems to suggest that everybody gets in eventually. Now, Origen was eventually called a heretic, and his teaching was removed from the church. And so after that happened, he had a few followers. This idea of universalism passed away for 1,600 years. And in the 1800s, several thinkers began to read and say, listen, this origin guy had something going on. And so it began to grow. And here's the interesting thing. It's begun to grow even more in the last 20 or 30 years. Here's the reason I think it's grown. 
And here's the reason I think Rob Bell has gone this direction. It's because we experience more people and cultures and religions than any group of people has ever experienced before. I've talked about to you before about Gramps. Gramps growing up didn't know somebody practicing Islam from Buddhism. And he definitely, he grew up in rural West Tennessee and he never met a Buddhist. And if he met a Muslim, he didn't know if he met a Muslim. And yet we live in a world where the world has come to us, and not only that, but we are exposed to the world. And so you begin to interact with people, and you're like, I know he says he believes this, but he is such a good guy. She, I know that she doesn't believe in Jesus, but, I mean, she helps people out so much. I mean, when the flood happened last year, she was one of the first people down there. And so you begin to say, well, surely God's not going to punish them. One preacher said that uh, if we're not careful, we all turn into universalists at funerals. Now, we get to a funeral and, and, and listen, I'm not saying that we make the final judgment on people. And I'm not saying that people can't have deathbed confessionals. But when you're at a funeral, everybody is good enough. Generally, I got a uh, got a book in the mail today that I had pre-ordered. Uh, Deborah was kind of laughing about it a little bit. It's called The Hardest Sermons You'll Ever Have to Preach. And Elizabeth said, we just take that and read it. Just, you know, these would be. But it's on subjects like um, um, somebody that commits suicide or uh, somebody that dies as a result of a poor choice in life. And so they they go and they have too many beers and they get out on the road and they die in an auto accident. So how do you preach somebody whose final act was something that was not godly? One of the most difficult things I've ever had to do was to preach a couple of funerals when I had no reason to believe except for a last-minute dying deathbed confession that that person had ever accepted the Lord. Because the family doesn't want to hear that. I mean, the family wants to hear what? We all know that in a better place. We'll go to see them someday. And so, as believers, it's almost like we struggle with this idea. Here's where Rob Bell is. Rob Bell is ministering in a northern community that doesn't have, um, it's not southern bread. All right? It's... I mean, here, hell, absolutely. We, we, we believe that kind of stuff. But there, he, he, he will say this in the interview. He talked to a lot of people. He's in an artistic community. He's in, he's in intellectual communities. And they say, I just can't accept a God who. And so he's trying to think, well, how in the world can I help them see the beauty of Jesus when this is their stumbling block? And so for him, it was a search to remove the stumbling block. I mean, he's right. In fact, I don't think he's right at all, but I know that's his motivation. And so the question is, well, what does he use to kind of say this? Does he just kind of say, well, this is what I think? Rob Bell will quote Bible stories and verses. Now, here's what I want to do with the rest of the time we have. I want to look at four passages of Scripture. You can turn with me if you want to through each one. We're going to be jumping around the Bible a little bit. 
They'll be up on the screen, so you don't have to. But if you're wanting to kind of mark some places, you can do that. And then we're going to look at four or five passages in the book of Matthew and ask, well, what did Jesus teach about it? So not just what does the Bible generally say, but what does Jesus teach about it? And one of the reasons we're going to camp out there, because this is an interesting thing, the Old Testament doesn't talk about hell. I mean, there are a couple of references in Ezekiel. There's a, a reference over in Daniel a little bit that could be kind of seen that way, but, but they're about punishment and that kind of thing. But the, the Old Testament doesn't talk about it. Now, that doesn't mean it's not true. The Old Testament doesn't talk a lot about heaven. The Old Testament doesn't give us a full understanding of who Jesus is. It gives us bits and pieces, and that's developed as we get into the New Testament. But you have to start kind of in the New Testament with it. Now, Rob Bell will quote several passages of Scripture saying, See, God will save every person. And one of the first ones he'll use is Philippians 2. You know Philippians, right? That your attitude ought to be the same as Jesus, who, even though he was on par with, equal with God, he did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but gave it up, became a servant, became obedient, became obedient even in the death on the cross, and that because of that, God has lifted him, exalted him, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Rob Bell says, what is the requirement in the Romans road for becoming a believer? It is to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So he says, see, in Philippians chapter 2, the Bible itself says that in the end, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you take that argument by itself... You could say, well, maybe he's got a point there. I mean, it does say every knee. I mean, every, I mean, I've preached this passage before and I've said every means every, right? I mean, this is every knee. This is nobody is exempt. But if you do that, you disregard the rest of the book of Philippians. Because in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says that those who oppose the gospel will face destruction and those who embrace it will be saved. There's a contrast there between believers and unbelievers having different destinies. In Philippians 3.19, Paul refers to the enemies of Christ whose end is destruction, while followers of Jesus look forward to resurrection and glory. We also see that Paul here is referencing a passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 45.23. And in that passage, Isaiah is referring to God's salvation witnessed among the nations but embraced by some and not all. So what does it mean here? Here's what I think the Scripture plainly teaches, is that everyone will acknowledge that Christ is in control. Because there's going to be no way to deny it. You're not going to be able to have a little group over here saying, I don't know. There's not going to be any insurrectionist. All right? I, I mean, if you all watched what's going on in Libya a little bit, I saw a thing on the Today Show today about the rebels who had raided uh, Gaddafi's daughter's palace. She had a she had a uh, she had a, a throne made 
Anybody see this? It was a mermaid with her face on it, on her own throne. And this picture, uh, the video I saw, had this like 24-year-old boy with a machine gun sitting in her throne. Nobody can say she's in control anymore. Because if she was in control, there wouldn't be a 24-year-old boy with a machine gun sitting on the throne with her face on it. Right? When Jesus comes, nobody's going to be able to say, he's not Lord. It'll be evident. All right? And so everybody will acknowledge this. King Jesus will reign and none will be able to deny it. But Paul doesn't contradict Isaiah. With this salvation and reign also comes judgment for those who are opposed to him in this life. Here's the second one that he uses. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most famous passages in the New Testament because it's the passage where Paul argues for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that, it's reminding us of what Christ did. And it says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. It's one of several passages like that. There's one in 2 Corinthians 5.19. In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In him all the fullness of God was to please. This is in Colossians 1.19. And through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so you've got these passages that seem to say, okay, just as Adam, and and here's the thing, just as Adam calls death for all people. Now, we would agree that the death of Adam, the sin of Adam, calls problems for every single human being that has ever lived. Original sin, our sin nature. So, Rob Bell said, if you believe that, in Christ... All will be made alive. Now, here's where I just want to say a quick little caveat. This is where it is so dangerous to take a single verse of Scripture out of what it actually says and then make it say whatever you want it to say. That's why it's so important to read 1 Corinthians 15 and not 1 Corinthians 15.22. I told you this, and you, you know it. I, I know most of you. There, when the, when, when uh, Paul wrote this, he didn't write 1 Corinthians 15, okay, now verse 22. It was just a letter. These are our own divisions. If you look at that passage, people just look at that, you go, well, I, I see he's got a point. All means all, so that means Everybody. But if you read the context, the very next verse says this. All who belong to Christ will be made alive at his coming. And then in verses 25 and 26, he says that destruction will come on everyone and everything that opposes God in this life. You can't separate it. So the all there doesn't mean all human beings. It means all those that are in Christ. Just as all those who are in Christ died with Adam, all those that are in Christ will live again in him. All doesn't mean every single person outside of Christ. It means all those in Christ. 
All right. Next one. First Timothy two verses three and four. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is the argument Rob Bell uses. He says, do you believe God is in control? Do you believe God is in control? Yes. God can do anything he wants to do, right? So, if God wants all men to be saved, shouldn't God get whatever he wants? If God is sovereign, God can do whatever he wants to do. If God can do anything he wants, and God wants all men to be saved, then are you telling me God's not going to get what he wants? The title of the chapter that he talks about this verse is, Does God get what God wants? This is one of those places that I got mad reading. Here's the truth. God's in control. I don't have any doubt about that. I don't have any problem with that. And I believe that God has a desire for all men to come to a saving knowledge of him. But I believe Scripture teaches that for God, there are two degrees of his will, at least. First of all, there's God's moral will. That's what he wants for us. That's He wants us to be the way he wants us to live. And then there's God's decreed will. That is what will happen no matter what. Now, here's the thing. God placed Adam in the garden. If you, if you want to take Rob Bell to task and say your logic doesn't fall like you want it to, that what he would have to say is God wanted Adam to fall. Right? If God always gets what God always wants, then God wanted Adam to fall, according if you follow his logic. God didn't want Adam to fall, but he gave him the ability and allowed it to happen. There are certain things that God will allow. And there are certain things that that God says, you know, for Eddie Harcastle, this is what I really want Eddie to do. But I'm going to let Eddie make up his mind and choose because real love only comes through choice. At the same time, our choices cannot do away or injure his decreed will definitely happen will. So here's, let's take Eddie, for example. I don't mean to pick on you, Eddie, but you're in the middle, all right? I really need to pick on those people in the back is who I need to pick on, all right? So, Bill, you're excused. You came in late. Those other four or five, Kathy and Bill and John are kind of excused. The other four, maybe not. All right? So let's say Eddie... God says that that there was something Eddie was supposed to do on August 31st, 2011. And right now God is in heaven going, Eddie didn't do it. He was supposed to share the gospel with somebody. He was supposed to go help somebody. He was supposed to deliver something to somebody. He was supposed to come in contact with somebody. And Eddie chose to stay home and sleep today. All right? Just for instance. That doesn't mean God now has to go, I've got to rewrite Revelation. Because Eddie has messed up all my plans. Right? I mean, God's still going to make it happen. He's still going to make it come to end like he wants. And so we're not, we don't have that much power. To give you an example, you remember Samson, right? Some of you have been in church a little while. 
Samson, who was Samson? Samson was long hair guy. Judge. What was he known for? Strength. He was kind of the Old Testament Hercules, if you will. Or Hercules was the Greek Samson, whatever you want to say. All right? And so Samson was a strong guy, this warrior. And Samson was chosen by God to do some great things. And Samson would have done great, except he made one really bad decision. What was that? It involved a woman, right? I will not give commentary at this moment about poor decisions in women, all right? But sometimes a guy's heart will pursue that which God does not intend for him to pursue. God did not want him to be with Delilah. Were there consequences for Samson's relationship with Delilah? What kind of consequences? Blindness, loss of strength, and death. Other than that, other than that, there was, you know, not too much. You know, but, so God's moral will for Samson was, didn't go like God would have wanted if he would have chosen, but he gave Samson a choice. At the same time, God was looking for a way to get into the Philistines and help to cause some damage. And so he took Samson's poor choices and used it to accomplish his decreed will. All that to say this. God would love for all men to come to saving knowledge of him. But he has allowed us to make those kind of decisions. At the same time, our choices are not going to somehow change the structure of the end times judgment, heaven and hell, and ultimate eternal things. All right? The last one he uses. Revelation. We go to Revelation 21, 24, and 25. This is when New Jerusalem's built. All these things are happening. The nations will walk by its light. That's the light of God. That is there's no there's no sun, no moon. There's no need for that because God is giving light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The idea there is even the kings of the earth that you can imagine have nothing compared to what you're about to see. And on no day will its gate ever be shut. Rob Bell says, see, even in heaven, the door is always open for people that want to come in. God is never going to shut the door to the new Jerusalem. So if that door is open, people will have the ability to come to the Lord. Coat and I were discussing this this afternoon. He says, I hope they don't leave the door open because knowing me, I'd find my way out. All right. And I agree. Coat probably would find his way out. All right. What's interesting is he never quotes the next part of the verse. And the next part of the verse tells you why they're not going to shut the gate. Because it'll never be night. Now, you shut the gate at night because you kept people out at night. How many of you lock your doors at night? All right. How many of you, when it's daylight outside and you're just in and out of the house, lock them? Maybe a couple of you. All right. We don't. All right. But at night, if if Susan wakes up in the morning and I've been the last to go to bed and she wakes up and the garage doors up and the doors are unlocked. Yeah, there's going to be some retribution or 
It's going to be some breakfast in bed, lunch in bed, supper in bed. Right? I mean, because part of my responsibility is to make sure the house is locked down at night. Because that's when things come in. The point of Revelation 21 is there will never be night, so there's no need to lock stuff up. You don't have to worry about it. None of that bad stuff is going to be a part of it. It doesn't have anything to do with the Lord's leaving the door open in case you want to sneak in sometime. So, here's the thing. Those just answer the objections that he has about everybody making it to heaven. I think you can build a strong biblical case, but not everybody makes it to heaven. So the next question is, well, where do they go if they don't make it to heaven? And that's where we come back to the question of hell. Now, there are places we can go in the New Testament. There's some writings in Second Peter. There's some writings in Jude. There's writings in Revelation, particularly at the end of Revelation when Satan is thrown into the fire. But let's just look at one book with Jesus and what he says. Matthew. We're going to look at uh, several places in Matthew. Um, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start and end there. In chapter 25, verse 31, you have this extended teaching, parable teaching on hell and heaven. And verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Now, He then goes in verses 34 and following and talks about what makes the difference. And we're not tonight going to go into what all that is, but you you know the passage, you've been around church at all, that there were those that were... I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And and then those that he says, get away from me, um, he won't. Verse 41, it says this when he's making that judgment. He will say to those on his left, depart from ye, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, it's hard to get more plain then you're going to spend eternity in the fireplace developed for the devil. But just in case we think that's a one-time thing, go back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Somebody tell me what's happening in Matthew chapter 5. What's going on here? Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is beginning the most extended sermon he will preach. He's done the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the poor and spicit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, the meek, the hunger and thirst, all that. Salt of the earth, light of the world. Then he gets to verse 21 and he says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka. Here's an interesting thing about that word. Even if you looked, uh, if you look down in your, like in the NIV, in the notes underneath, they may give you some description of what it is. The NIV originally just wrote an Aramaic term of contempt. Either they don't want to translate it, or it's just one of those things that they didn't. Because there are, just, there are words in the English language that aren't nice. This is probably one of those words, an Aramaic word of contempt. And Jesus is saying, if you're saying that, you're answering with a Sanhedrin. But if you say, you fool. You'll be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, 
the question is, what did people think of when he said the word hell? Because he doesn't explain it here, does he? He just says, you're going to be in danger of hell. Well, what was hell? Well, there are a couple of theories out there, and one of them I'd like to tell you has been passed down a lot. And I was shocked today to read some stuff that, that uh, read it today. That the word Gehenna, hell, used was for, and you may see this in some of your study Bibles, was for a garbage dump on the outside of the city that was burning continually. Do you know the first reference anybody has found to that? The first reference anybody has found to it was in 1000 A.D. A thousand years after Jesus lived. So there's no evidence that that is the case. Okay? There's no evidence that that is truly the case. That there was this garbage dump. And so, because some people will say, well, that's what Jesus was talking about. You'll be in, you're just going to get thrown in the trash dump. People of that day, when they heard the word hell, they already had in their mind, if you look at the writings around Jesus, of a place of punishment and torture that lasted forever. So Jesus didn't feel like he had to explain that. You know, from our perspective, we say Jesus should have said an eternal place of fire, hell. Let me describe it for you so you don't miss the point. When he said hell to them, they knew what he was talking about, and he didn't correct them. He didn't say, you know what I mean? I mean the trashed up. I don't mean that eternal place y'all think is not there. So Jesus says, listen, you're in danger of the fire of hell. Look at Matthew 13. And in Matthew chapter 13, verse 30, Jesus has been telling this parable of the weeds. He talks about the wheat and the, the tares of the weeds growing up. Let both grow up until harvest. At the time, I will tell them the harvesters collect the weeds and put them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the weed and bring it to my barn. Then you go down to verse 40. And he says, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then in case we just didn't get that, verse 49. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will become and separate the wicked from the righteous, throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whatever else Jesus taught, Jesus taught that hell is a place of punishment, that comes after judgment, and he describes hell in imagery of a darkness and fire where people lament, weep, gnash their teeth. Matthew 23, verse 31. So you testify against yourselves that there are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your sin of your forefathers. Verse 33. Is he's talking to him about the fact they're about to kill him even though they don't know they are. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Obviously, their hell is something to be punished, to be contemned. After judgment, that's where you go. All right, back over to Matthew 25, and we're going to finish with this. Verse 46 says this. This is after the sheep and the goats have been separated. They've been placed there. Verse 46 says, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, people have tried to debate what does that mean. All I know is, to me, it's a simple contrast. Eternal punishment versus eternal life. Jesus had every opportunity to deny that hell was a real place. 
And yet he teaches that it is. Now, what does that mean for us? By the way, I would recommend several of the things that I got today uh, or got for you tonight came out of the Francis Chan book I mentioned called Erasing Hell. I'd recommend it. It's good. It's a good, reasonable argument. One of the reasons I like it is because of the first thing that Francis Chan says in the book. Um, He says this. If you're excited to read this book, you have issues. Do you understand the weight of what we're about to consider? We're exploring the possibility that you and I may end up being tormented in hell. Or our neighbors, our friends, our relatives. Excited would be the wrong term. Necessary would be more fitting. Francis Chan then goes on to describe a moment in his life when he stood by the bedside of a family member who had rejected Jesus repeatedly. And that he avoided this subject for years because he didn't want to think of that person spending eternity there. Part of me doesn't want to believe in hell, and I'll admit that I have a tendency to read in description what I want to find. I spent hours fasting and praying that God would prevent my desires from twisting Scripture to gratify my personal desires. He then says a couple of pages over, this is what I had to come to grips with. God has the right to do whatever he pleases. If I've learned one thing from studying hell, it's that line. God has the right to do whatever he pleases. We need to ask God to help us think rightly about hell. Pray. Pray. Pray that God will show you what is true. Pray that that he knows that you have a craving to kind of not believe it. And then he goes on to write the book. And one of the things he says in it is, if what I believe, if what I read in the Bible is true about hell, then it ought to drive me to my knees and to my neighbors. And he's, you know, one of the things that Rob Bell, I mentioned it was a frustrating book, because there are times when he says things that you just go, man, he, he is on track here. I just wish he'd stay on track. One of the things Rob Bell says that is true, and it's true of the people that criticized his book. He said, oftentimes those people that most vigorously defend the doctrine of hell are doing the least to try to tell people how to get out of it. And the thing that I had to come to grips with is, okay, I could spend hours investigating, studying, figuring it out. Francis Chan describes this place. He's writing this book. He said, I'm sitting in a Starbucks writing this book right now about hell when there are 30 people in this restaurant that might be going there. He said, part of me wants to slam my MacBook down and start talking. He talks about the Apostle Paul and how Paul had this real sense of judgment. And because of that, it led him to share his faith over and over and over again. And the question he asks is, if you believe this, what prevents you from being passionate about sharing? I think that's the question that we all have to deal with. Not whether or not we think it's true, but whether we live like we think it's true.